Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, July 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. George Ankopoulos, the head scientist at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, joins us to discuss some of the week's biggest news and a new genetic discovery. Then we'll discuss this week's huge story from Damian, Adam, and Matt Herber that dropped some very revealing details about how Biogen's Alzheimer's drug got through the FDA. And we'll start with some quick takes on the week in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. James Musser and his colleagues at the Houston Methodist Research Institute sequenced 20,453 specimens from COVID-19 patients starting in March 2020. Visit the Leading Medicine blog on HoustonMethodist.org to learn more. So Meg, let's start with uh, covid type stuff. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, booster shots, particularly when it comes to uh, the J&J vaccine, right? Yeah. And it's really all in the face of the threat posed by the Delta variant. We know this variant is more contagious. We are seeing it cause major upticks in cases in the UK. Folks like Eric Topol have warned that the UK has uh, been a warning for us at least three times. And now it's a flashing warning sign again um, that we could be in for increased spread uh, in areas that are seeing lower rates of vaccination uh, because of the Delta variant. And as people are looking at that, they're wondering what this means for their vaccines. And the data so far have been really good for the two-dose vaccines, and particularly the mRNA vaccines. Pfizer has shown strong protection with two doses. Now, folks in the U.S. who got the J&J vaccine, and that's about 12 million people, are saying, wait, this is a one-dose vaccine. You know, it's similar to AstraZeneca in terms of the efficacy we saw and in terms of the um, the technology. Uh, you know, Dr. Walensky called it a sister vaccine to AstraZeneca. So we've started to see people like Angela Rasmussen, the virologist, um, actually go out and get a booster dose of an mRNA vaccine on top of her J&J shot basically to provide some extra comfort against protection from Delta. The problem with this from folks like Dr. Paul Offit um, and others is that there's no data on this. Uh, so, you know, we just don't know, A, you know, how well J&J stands up against Delta. We haven't seen even studies of the immunogenicity of that. We also don't know what exactly happens when you give an mRNA vaccine on top of the J&J vaccine. One would suspect from studies we've seen from the AstraZeneca vaccine boosted with mRNA that it's both safe and provides an immune response. And that's Angie's take on things. Um, but Folks warn without actually looking at it and studying it, we don't know for sure. And there have been surprises with these vaccines before, like the clotting and like the myocarditis, even though they are very rare and experts say manageable. So that is something that's happening right now. And I heard from J&J this week, they do expect to have data very soon looking at efficacy against Delta or at least immunogenicity against Delta. Also, the durability of the vaccine in general from their phase two trial and their two-shot regimen, they're going to have data from that trial this summer, and that will inform a lot. So I'm shaking my head as I say this, but are we going back to a, a situation where where masks are going to be recommended again because you know the possibility that cases are going up due to the Delta variant? 
Well, I mean, we've seen that in Los Angeles County. They have recommended that people wear masks, even if they're vaccinated indoors. Um, You know, it's different for everybody, Adam. Like, I mean, there are some places where I know a lot of people are vaccinated. Like, I've been shooting this uh, piece for CNBC within the vaccine companies at Moderna and Pfizer. And even there, like, I kind of took my mask off and I was like, everybody here is vaccinated. I'm good. But, like, (laughs) I have not been, like, walking into a grocery store without a mask. Like, have you? I I do not wear masks anymore. Like I don't I don't even bring them out with me. I I don't I, so I've like become like mask less and I mean it's going to be really hard to go back to you know mask guidelines where where people say you need to wear a mask. I just that's going to be really tough, I think. If you listen to the CDC messaging, it just doesn't sound like they're going to backtrack on this. And I think a lot of people think that they were very wrong for putting out that guidance when they did in May, um, just that they did it with without a lot of data. And now what you're seeing is the CDC and ACIP, their advisory uh, group on immunization practices, not weighing in on this booster thing because there aren't data. Whereas I think Angie and others feel they made this mask recommendation mm. without enough data, too. Um Anyway, Damien, are you wearing masks? That's a really good point that you just made. Um, I I just roll with whatever the etiquette seems to be. I went to the grocery store this morning and I put a mask on because other people had done so and the employees did so. And it's just a second. It's no thought to me. Like I, I am interested in that debate because of its societal implications. But I personally... Just I kind of do whatever. I, I, I'm, I'm not that concerned with my own personal comfort. One thing I was going to say, though, you know, as we're talking about this sort of brave new world of mixing and matching vaccines and the data we need and, and what we can assume, it just underscores like how incredibly fortunate we are that we have this multitude of vaccines. Because earlier this week, uh, CureVac, who I know we spoke about earlier because they had interim data that was disappointing, they now have final data and it's just as disappointing. That vaccine may never be licensed anywhere. And then a smaller company, Altimmune, which maybe not that many people were counting on, whatever, they conceded failure in their attempts to create a COVID-19 vaccine. And it just underlined for me seeing those headlines that like, again, we're, we're just incredibly fortunate that we get to have a debate of which vaccines can we combine rather than the peril of, oh my God, we still don't have vaccines and it's you know summer 2021. Yeah, I mean, the idea of taking a booster on top of what was billed as the world's one-shot pandemic vaccine from Johnson & Johnson definitely has ethical questions that come along with it. And a lot of folks have pointed out, unfortunately, some of these Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are sitting on shelves in the U.S. approaching their expiration dates, and that makes it harder to gather them all up and donate them to other countries. Um, But it is a terrible thing to be thinking about when there are people at high risk who haven't gotten one shot and we're thinking, how much can I boost my immunity on top of the shot? that I already got, you know, here in the U.S. Um, Adam, I want to ask you about your biotech revenge this week. (laughs) You've been tweeting about, you've been crowing about something, and I honestly haven't followed it closely enough, but I I kind of always love Adam when you're in this mode. You know, I don't, I don't do a lot of like the self-congratulatory backslapping kind of thing. It's just, it's just not necessary, right? But yes, Meg, there has been a story that I, it's a story that I've been following. I have to think it's probably gone back more than a decade, right? So this is a tiny biotech company called CellSci, and they've been developing this cancer immunotherapy for, well, it's actually for uh, people with head and neck cancer. And, 
you know, it's just one of these sort of low grade, you know, biotech stocks that that are just real low quality and um, highly promotional. And you know, it's gone on for, like I said, decade. You know, and, and it's amazing how long these things can go on for. Well, yes, you're right. So this week they finally, 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 after after quite literally uh, more than a year of kind of holding off on releasing data from this pivotal phase three study, they finally did so this week. And um, you know, not surprisingly, the study failed. Uh, the drug doesn't work. Not surprisingly, the company like put out some sort of very lame kind of post hoc spin to try to make the data look better than uh, you know than it actually is. And you know, again, we've seen endless examples of that. And I well, actually, I was kind of disappointed because I thought that after all this time, that this company would actually come up with something really original in their in their kind of BS spin job. And it wasn't. It was actually incredibly lame. Um, and the market caught on to it, you know, which is maybe a little bit surprising these days in kind of the whole Reddit, you know, short squeeze thing. I thought that maybe this company would sort of catch lightning in a bottle and, and, and find a new group of, of suckers to buy into it, but they didn't, and the stock has been tanking all week. So there you go. So the other big news of the week had more to do with science than stock promotion, and that was new data from Intellia, the CRISPR company, on a new genome editing treatment that, you know, over the weekend was presented and, and seemed to really galvanize interest not only in that program, but in the field and really stoke optimism that this relatively new technology is well on its way to becoming a medicine for some rare diseases. Yeah, I mean, I would say like over the weekend, I was really seeing a ton of attention on this from people like Sake. Catherine, uh, the CEO of Verve, which is working on CRISPR applications for the heart. Um, and people were just tremendously electrified by this news. And, and really, the reason why was because it's the first time we've seen CRISPR delivered systemically as a medicine to the body. Now, I will say it was for a liver disease. So it, it's kind of like, you know, the first time doing this, you know, liver is kind of where things go in the body. And so, you know, they figured that out. It is still a leap to be able to get to other tissues that may be harder to reach and harder to target. But still, it was a huge milestone in proving that this can be done. And it ended up working really, really well. Um, they were targeting uh, a gene that creates these uh, misfolded proteins that build up and can cause these uh, nerve issues. And what they found was that with CRISPR, uh, they were able to knock down that protein in the high dose by 80 87%. And there was just a ton of excitement about this scientifically and also uh, from Wall Street, which now seems to be dividing, you know, CRISPR companies into in vivo and ex vivo um, applications and in vivo is on vogue. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, th this is definitely one of those, oh, wow, type moments. You know, we, you know, we had the data on our embargo and uh, Megan Maltini, uh, a colleague of ours at Stat, you know, she was working on the story and I was kind of working with her a little bit on it. And so we had the data early in the week, you know, when I saw it, I was like, wow, that, you know, that 87% that of uh, their ability to, you know, they, they're cutting out this gene and it resulted in this 87% reduction in this, in this kind of disease causing protein was pretty remarkable given it, particularly given the sort of like the, the relatively low dose that they were using here. And Meg, to your point, though, about the stocks, I mean, it is it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, like, I think Intelia now is like an 11 billion dollar market cap company. But you're right, like companies like Beam, like a lot of their a lot of these sort of, you know, in the companies that are doing sort of the in vivo CRISPR genome editing um, and even sort of like the second generation CRISPR companies. I mean, they're all the stocks are all going crazy. Yeah, it's notable because, of course, we can assume, I think, 
pretty easily that not everything will work and and you know the, there will be gyrations both in in obviously the stock prices but even in the sentiment around this technology but i did think it was interesting you know meg as you mentioned the liver is the natural starting place and we've seen historically that's where people started with rnai and other technologies but these data if you look at it a certain way you know mrna which has had this incredible time in terms of vaccine technology was once envisioned as this transformational therapeutic technology and they too mRNA developers were focused on the liver because that was naturally where it would go. And, you know, you could look at it this way with the Intellia data that CRISPR has kind of maybe edged ahead of mRNA when it comes to therapeutic applications with these data. An interesting connection between the two things is that the way they figured out how to deliver the CRISPR is inside a lipid nanoparticle, which is similar to how the mRNA vaccines are delivered. So lipid nanoparticles will save the world and it all comes back to COVID. thinking about a lot of the big biotech news of the week, um, there was really one person who uh, sort of connected a lot of uh, the news that was happening, sort of disparate events, um, all touching one company uh, and one person we really wanted to talk with. Uh, and that's Georgian Kopoulos. Uh, he's the co-founder, president and chief scientific officer of Regeneron, uh, which is partnered with Intellia on the CRISPR news we were talking about earlier in the show. Uh, there was also some big news this week in the monoclonal antibody space in COVID, uh, where the US government said it was going to stop distributing the Eli Lilly drugs because they didn't have activity against uh, some of the concerning variants uh, of the virus. Regenerons is one of the um, the drugs that is still uh, being used and recommended by the U.S. government. Um, so we wanted to talk with George about that and a lot more. So George joins us now. George, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Meg. So George, let's start with last weekend's, you know, big uh, kind of, I guess, a landmark in, in genome editing. What was your take? Well, as you put it, certainly landmark data. It was the first ever clinical data supporting that you could use a CRISPR genome editing approach in human beings. Um, obviously, it's one thing to uh, make the discovery of this pathway, and I know there was an excitement, lots of excitement, more than 10 years ago about it, uh, but most people don't realize it takes a long time and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a a lot of science and technology to take a basic science discovery and turn it into reality. And that's what's so exciting about that. This is reality now. We were able to show together with our collaborators at Intellia that we could, with a single, actually pretty low dose of this uh, liposomal delivery approach, uh, we could use CRISPR to knock out, knock down a toxic liver gene that was causing a major disease in individuals. Um, with an average reduction of almost 90% and a maximum reduction of 96%. This is really game-changing for this disease in particular, this rare um, but serious disease, but it's more importantly a proof of principle that CRISPR therapy is, is turning into a reality. And we hope that uh, we're at the beginning now of, of using it to, to really make a difference in, in human disease. And to clarify, George, I know we've seen other CRISPR treatments that are done, you know, the genes are edited outside the body, then put back in the patient. But the challenge here was delivering this therapy systemically and then getting it to the place where it needs to go to do the editing inside the body, right? Right. I think that that's the real, that was the dream. 
Okay, there's been all sorts of approaches and technologies that have allowed ex vivo editing. Uh, and there's really nothing that special about using CRISPR to do it outside of the body. Getting something to work in a human being is, is orders of magnitude more difficult than trying to do it just in a test tube. We and others have been modifying human genes and test tubes long before CRISPR, um, uh, doing it in vivo, doing it in an actual human being. That's the real landmark here. This is the first time it's ever been done. I think this turns a dream into a reality. Well, take us back a little bit to um, how the partnership between Regeneron and Intellab uh, came about. Um, you know, traditionally, Regeneron has been very selective with, I think, partnerships that it does. And so I'm curious to know, you know, why you decided to partner at all in this space and also how you chose Intellia, because there are several companies working on CRISPR. How did you guys end up with Intellia? We wanted, we had always been doing human sequencing at a low level and human genetics at a low level. Could we take this to, to a completely different level? We have antibodies, we have bispecifics. We believe we're the world leaders with those approaches uh, as we've proven time and time again. But we needed a new set of tools to address all of the new genetics targets that were coming out of our Regeneron Genetic Center and this massive human sequence phenome database that we had created. And we had lots of targets. We just needed to address them. And we looked out there and what we wanted was just a few special companies that could synergize with what we were doing internally, could give us something else, but also companies that we could help, that we could help take them to the next level. And so in addition to not only Intellia, we also identified Al Nylum as a key such company that had a lot of core values similar to us, culture similar to us. So Intellia and Al Nylum became targets for us as companies that, that really were like little Regenerons, but that we could then help their technologies. We had a lot of respect for what they were doing. We liked what their scientists were doing, but we thought we could help also take them to the next level collaboratively, improve the technology and work together on many of these targets, including targets that were coming out of the Regeneron Genetic Center. This is not just, oh, first time ever clinical data with you know, CRISPR in humans. This is part of a much, much bigger story. This is creating a whole new effort uh, to bring genetic medicines to reality and not just one technique, one technology, a whole assortment that are going to really allow us to do things that have never been done before. You know, the, the, the frontier here is going to be built by understanding genetics and finding uh, new targets. Um, and you have a new discovery, you know, just today that you're announcing um, in the obesity front. Tell us about uh, what you published uh, today about that. Yeah, so we have this Regeneron Genetic Center that sequences literally, by the end of the year, we'll have over 2 million humans sequenced, all linked to their electronic health records. So we can look for very rare mutations that are associated with either benefit or harms. So in the same vein, we've discovered dozens of protective such mutations. The one that you're referring to that we're just announcing uh, now is a protective gene against obesity. It turns out, I guess everybody always wonders why some people seem to have some sort of perhaps natural protection against obesity. Well, many times it may be in your genes. So it turns out that some humans, rare humans, about one in 3000 are protected against obesity because they have this protective variant in this gene. And we now already have initiated um, therapeutic efforts to mimic the protective mutations, either using biologicals, or in this case, for example, through our collaboration with alnylam, an siRNA that can mimic the protective mutation. 
And George, how much do the Regeneron scientists know about this genetic mutation, this protective mutation against obesity? Like, what is, what is that? What exactly does it do? That's a great question. Um, we are only when you start out with genetics. Sometimes, when you have a whole new gene and a whole new pathway, you have to figure out that pathway, uh, and and it's hard to do that actually in man. Uh, as you know, especially when it's so rare in man that it's only one in 3,000 humans. So what we've done is we've used our mouse genetics capability, Velocigene. We've actually engineered the mutation into mice. It actually mimics. That's also another beautiful validation. So the mice that carry the same exact variant are also protected from obesity. We started to study them that's how you have to do it. And as you point out, it's important to understand a pathway because there may be other points in that pathway that we may ultimately understand that we can intervene in. And some of those might be easier to drug target than the first, the first target that we're seeing here. How long do you, um, do you think that path to a potential drug there based on this target you know, might be? And also, how do you view the landscape for treating obesity uh, with a drug like this when, you know, still, I think many doctors would say this is a lifestyle condition that can be fixed with um, changes in diet and exercise. Yeah, obviously, you know, I mean, this is an age old question, you know, what's a lifestyle and what is something that's causing so much disease and, and such an epidemic worldwide. I think that eventually we're all going to have to come around to the fact that we, we're going to need therapeutics to help us fight this. And there are some recent success stories in obesity and diabetes that really are showing the power of therapeutics, but unfortunately, they're not able to address the whole problem. If the obesity epidemic continues unabated, up to 25% of the US population will have type two diabetes associated with their obesity. I mean, that is a level of disease that no society you know, can endure. I mean, we just saw it with COVID. Okay, when you're getting, you know, millions and millions of people infected and sick. Well, George, you mentioned COVID, of course, and Regeneron was a big player in um, inventing a new drug um, for the pandemic. Um, you published a paper or two papers in Science um, last year, uh, essentially that look very prescient now, showing that um, you need to take the potential for the virus to mutate into consideration. And that's in fact how you designed this cocktail of antibodies. And now we see that the government, because of essentially 10% prevalence of these two variants, P1 and B1351, and the fact that the Lily, uh, both the cocktail and the single antibody don't retain activity against those variants, um, they're stopping shipping the Lily antibody drug. Um, tell us about just how you looked at this from the beginning? I mean, do you kind of feel like saying, I told you so? Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that from the beginning, and it was our whole team, and remember, we're the team led by Christos Kiratsus, who developed the Ebola cocktail as well, which was a cocktail of antibodies, also for the same reasons, which was proven highly effective in the World Health Organization study uh, done in the Congo. And that was our first experience. And we had a lot of data there that said that you know, you go forward with a single antibody. It's try, like trying in the olden days to cure AIDS, HIV, with the single antibody. The virus will mutate uh, and you'll get resistant to that single drug. And that's why you treat HIV with a cocktail. It's the same thing here with antibodies. You can't treat with the single antibody. I actually cautioned, our, our whole team did, you know, our peers at, at Lilly. I also, you know, tried to 
explain this to the FDA and to others. And I actually was worried. I thought that it was irresponsible to allow single antibody treatments. Or remember, the Lilly combination is not really a cocktail because both of the antibodies are overlapping. They hit the same site. So it's two antibodies that hit the same site. So a single mutation in the virus can take them both out. That's the problem. What you need is you need disparate antibodies that bind on di different parts of the virus. So you would need two independent genetic events to create resistance. We have next generation programs and we have future cocktails to really you know, make the whole thing bulletproof because we are worried that the virus might continue to evolve and might even get around even, you know, even our cocktail. But that said, we're already ready. We're already putting into the clinic next gen cocktails that um, hopefully will, 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 will be bulletproof against any possible uh, mutations that we might ultimately see. So you are saying I told you so. Uh, one last question for you, um, because we were talking about um, the this protective mutation in obesity. And it reminds me of this other thing we're talking about on the, the podcast this week, um, which is Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. Um, and Adam and Damien and, and Matt Herper um, had a big story on um, sort of how that drug ended up getting to the market, but also looked back at its um, origin. And the story around it is that people, certain people seem to have potential protection against dementia and that this antibody, you know, was derived from one of those people. George, from where you sit, do the genetics support uh, that kind of, you know, um, origin story? Um, and any other thoughts you want to share on that particular drug? Well, I think that the origin story on the antibody in particular is very weak. There's no reason to think that that antibody really has any genetic basis that it's protective. For sure, for sure, we know that the, the gene encoding the A-beta protein is highly linked genetically to disease. That does not mean that particular therapeutic approaches like making an antibody that could then bind to the product that accumulates will necessarily be beneficial. Uh, you know, genetics is a complicated thing and it's a starting point and you have to have the right tool and the right toolkit and the right therapeutics approach. Um, this is why we're also undertaking other approaches. I mean, we believe in the target. We're just not sure. And certainly the clinical data do not support that these antibody approaches really have profound efficacy or any efficacy. And this is why I think it's such a controversy, why the ad committee voted strongly against approving it and why you've seen so much pushback because I don't think anybody believes that there's convincing efficacy that's been demonstrated for any of these antibodies um, against a beta. So it's not just the genetics, it's having the right way to attack it, which is why it's great to be in a position where we have all of these various approaches for therapeutics at our disposal. We can use the right one for the right disease. But George, did you like our story? Um, <laughs> I do think that you guys hit on a lot of the right issues. George, thanks a lot for joining us today. All right, Adam and Meg, thank you guys uh, for having me, and it's always fun. Before we move on with the podcast, I wanted to plug Stat's newest show, The First Opinion Podcast. Each week, host Pat Skerritt talks to expert guests about issues and ideas that are shaping health and medicine. Recent guests include Priscilla Chan on the importance of pediatric research, author Walter Isaacson on his new CRISPR book, and Chelsea Clinton on the public health consequences of fracking. You can find the First Opinion podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey. 
If you happen to be on the distribution list of Public Citizen, on Wednesday morning, you got an email with the blaring headline, in wake of stunning new revelations of unprecedented FDA biogen collaboration on Alzheimer's disease drug, senior FDA officials must go, HHS, IG must investigate. And in the text of this uh, email, they cite stunning new disclosures in a detailed expose published yesterday by STAT. This was the work of my two co-hosts, Adam and Damien, as well as Matt Herper. Uh, guys, this was an opus. It was the definitive backstory of um, of how this drug, which has generated more controversy than any in, in recent memory, um, getting through the FDA, um, came together. Um, so tell us, I mean, without a lot of it is sourced, and I know you can't tell me who your sources are, but how did this story happen? Start from the beginning. Well, thank you. And it actually dates back to more than a year ago. Um, when this is, you know, if we all recall when aducanumab, the drug that became aduhelm, seemed doomed and it seemed like this scandal that, you know, Biogen, by virtue of running these clinical trials and, and declaring them futile and, and the whole backstory that people know, that they'd really squandered this opportunity. And so we were talking to a lot of people who had been, you know, kind of on the front lines of developing the drug about the internal turmoil at Biogen. And we spent, I don't even, I don't remember how long talking to people. And, you know, we, we learned a lot of things, but nothing that you would really sort of inside baseball journals, nothing you'd really hang a story on. So we just had like these, these overflowing notebooks of interesting details about the process by which the drug was developed. And then you cut to June 7th when the FDA approves it and, and Meg, all the controversy that you alluded to. And, and we kind of thought like, well, why don't we catch back up with all the people we were talking to last summer? And then that, I mean, Adam, I guess this is, you know, you can add color to this, but it just kind of snowballed. Well, I know we, uh, we should give credit to our uh, esteemed podcast executive producer, Rick Burke, who is also executive editor of Stat and our boss. And, you know, if, the way, I mean, kind of the way this started was... I guess it was the Friday after the approval. Like, you know, we had done like a ton of stories, right, on the approval and all the sort of imp near term sort of implications of this very polarizing, controversial uh, decision by the FDA to approve Adohelm. And then, um, you know, Rick gets us, <laughs> gets us on a conference call. You know, he's like, all right, guys. What's next? You know, I think we should have we should do like the, the the definitive take on how this drug got approved. You know, bring us inside Biogen and we want to know everything that happened that got how they got this drug approved. And I think we were all sort of sitting there like, um, OK, how are we how are we going to do this? Uh, but we ended up doing it. It took us took us a few weeks um, and then we wrote um, like 7000 words. <laughs> Yeah, it took me like three days to read it, but I did finish the entire thing. It was long. Uh, it was long. I love when editors tell reporters to do seemingly impossible things, um, like get inside the head of this executive you've yeah. never met and explain yeah. why they did this. But you guys actually like did that pretty well here. And from where I sit, I mean, there were a few sort of like massive revelations um, in this piece. And um, let's go through them you know, sort of one by one. I, I think the, the first one that you reveal is is really how this drug, which seemed dead, I mean, Biogen announced that it was dead in March 2019, but then it wasn't dead suddenly. And um, this all centers around Al Sandrock, who we've talked about on the podcast before, head of research at Biogen, the shepherd of so many of their successful drugs getting to market, somebody who's resuscitated a drug from the brink before in Tysabri, their MS drug. You guys found out about this sort of off-the-books meeting that he had with Billy Dunn from the FDA. Tell us about that. You know, I think what we were surprised to learn, you know, again, sort of stepping back, was how fast and how quickly Biogen started to resurrect Aduhelm. You know, like you said, Meg, 
you know, March 2019, the company surprises everybody with this announcement that the two clinical trials were futile. They were discontinuing this drug. So everyone thought, well, here we go. This is another Alzheimer's drug that you can kind of throw into the pile of failed Alzheimer's drugs. But like just really within weeks of that, the company was working to kind of dig into the clinical trials and finding, trying to find evidence uh, that suggested the drug worked. And, you know, we, you know, there's a, there was a secret project name. They, they called it Project Onyx internally. What I loved also about that name wasn't just that they called it Project Onyx, but that they wanted to call it Project Phoenix, which like really is apt <laughs> and their lawyers wouldn't let them. Yeah, I think their lawyers are worried. Like, I don't know why their lawyers are worried that Project Phoenix, you know, like rising from the ashes. I don't know. There was something they didn't like about it. So they called it Project Onyx and, and Project Onyx, like Onyx had no meaning. It was just like this word that they used and they gave it to it. So, but I think like, Damien, don't you think that was kind of thing that we were so surprised at how how quickly not only they sort of tried to resurrect a drug, but then how fast they you know they went to the FDA with again this sort of off the books meeting with uh, with Billy Dunn. Right. I think. I mean, that's where. I mean, I remember talking to you. This it was not that long ago. I think it was Wednesday night last week. After you know we kind of wrapped our heads around this, that basically Sandrock within weeks and and other people at Biogen had had ferreted out this this signal that we would all come to learn so much about, where you know one study was ostensibly positive. The other one was pretty clearly negative. But if you looked at it a certain way, it could support the ostensibly positive one. But what was shocking to us was, you know, as is in the story, that Sandrock managed to meet with Billy Dunn from the FDA that May. So just weeks after the futility analysis, they happened to be at the same neurology conference in Philadelphia. And that, you know, as we reported, it's kind of uncomfortable to, to get the sourcing into phrasing. But when Sandrock returned to Biogen and explained the meeting, Basically, they were off to the races. It was Biogen's perception that Dunn was on board with this version, this view of the data, and that Adjuhelm would, in fact, one day become a product. And then by that June, um, I think the other thing that stands out from our reporting that a lot of people were upset about is that by that June, the FDA had proposed a range of potential options for this drug. But one of them was this controversial accelerated approval where the drug would be approved based on its effect on plaques in the brain rather than its long-term effect on the actual you know, clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, when the FDA cut to 2021 would approve the drug based on that accelerated approval, people were very upset. And they were doubly upset because in 2020, when the FDA convened a bunch of experts to talk about approving this drug, they never mentioned this prospect of accelerated approval. And so I think a lot of the fallout, you know, Public Citizen and others since publication has really focused on what seems like uh, contradictory messaging from the Food and Drug Administration. Well, not only did they not mention it, they explicitly said that amyloid was not being used as a surrogate for efficacy, right? Like that's from the advisory committee meeting. So they specifically told the advisors that they were not considering that as a pathway for approval. And, you know, Adam actually called me and like told me some of the the things in the story before I had a chance to read the story. And that was the thing that I actually gasped when he said it, because I was like, wait, 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 the FDA knew that it was going to consider this potential accelerated pathway based on amyloid as a biomarker when they explicitly told their advisors not to discuss that or consider it. And it just made me wonder, was the FDA essentially hoping that the panel would get on board with how enthusiastic they appeared to be about the drug? And then when they didn't, they thought, okay, we're going to try this other method, but not ask our advisors because we've seen that they're already against this and we just we want to approve it and we don't think they're going to back us. I mean, it just makes the FDA look re really bad, I, I think, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. They were sort of going down the full approval right, even even though they sort of they had 
offered accelerated approval as a as a scenario, you know, something that might be a possibility, you know, two literally two years ago, right? Um, I think that after that, they sort of were going down this full approval route, and that's kind of what they wanted to happen. But I think you're right, Megan, that the panel being so negative kind of just derailed that idea, right? And then they sort of had to fall back on something to get this approved, and and they ultimately chose this accelerated approval path. But again, it kind of just shows you how supportive the FDA was and because working in partnership with Biogen. Now we we knew that before our story came out, it was clear that, you know, there was this close working relationship between Biogen and the FDA. And I think but I think what our story shows is that it started earlier and it was much more intense than than what had been previously known or reported. Um, and that, you know, that brings up all kinds of issues, right? And you, you hear people, you know, complaining about regulatory capture and, you know, where the FDA is really not acting as kind of a true independent arbiter of drugs, that they're working too closely, they're too influenced by the drug companies that they're supposed to be regulating. And that's kind of, I think you're seeing a lot of people, there's been a lot of concern about that and, and you know, thoughts about what to do, what to do about that situation. One of the details I also thought was really illuminating from reading your story was um, the the internal arguments over whether to even take an interim look at the time that they did, and then how the interim look was taken by combining the two trials together rather than looking at them independently, um, which could have picked up on the differences between the studies. Um, and then you guys also revealed that a member of the Data Safety Monitoring Board resigned um, because of sort of the, I guess, disagreements over how to do all this, which seems an important detail perhaps as well. Yeah. I mean, the short version of it is that it was kind of a mess throughout that whole time. There were conflicting, basically, motivations within Biogen. Although, you know, (laughs) we talked to a lot, a lot of people looking for like, okay, so whose idea was this thing or who pushed for it, whatever. And, you know, most of them said everybody was united on the idea that they should do this analysis. And it was mostly in the name of cost. They were confident in this drug, but in the event that it didn't work, they would like to know that it doesn't work as early as possible because Biogen, you know, it's a big company, but as we discussed in the story, they don't have infinite big pharma money. And there was a lot of pressure from their investors to make the most of this. And if this drug wasn't going to work, to not throw good money after bad. And then, you know, some of the turmoil we reported on, and obviously everybody in retrospect agrees that not only was doing the analysis probably a bad idea, the way they did the analysis, as you mentioned, by combining data from the two trials under the assumption that they would be identical was a huge error, um, which, you know, the FDA has acknowledged, everybody has acknowledged, and, you know, some some heads rolled uh, over that. I think it's fair to say, um, Adam, we learned in, in reporting. And you know, it's one of those things where, you know, success has infinite authors and, and, and failure tends to be an orphan. Um, Adam, I don't know. Was there any other detail from from that process? Well, I think I think we were trying, you know, this period of time, you know, you kind of roughly think of it as like 2015 to 2018, you know, kind of going into 2019. It's it's kind of a really interesting period for Biogen. And, you know, we tried to sort of put all of this stuff into context of what was going on, you know, generally within the company. And, and you know, this is the company that, you know, you know, Meg, you mentioned earlier, you know, the, 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 the MS drugs and, and sort of their incredible success. But this was also a time, you know, starting in 2015, where, where the, the growth of their sort of core MS business was slowing down. You know, 2015, you know, the company had their first major layoff. You know, that I think about 11% of the workforce was let go because of the because of slowing growth. And so, you know, 
as Damien mentioned, you know, cost became this issue. They they didn't they didn't really have tons of money to spend on this, and so they were feeling that kind of economic pressure, the business pressure. And then there was also all kinds of internal turmoil. You know, we reported on you know conflicts and tensions within the program itself, and you know Al Sanrock kind of wanting to sort of consolidate all the research and R and D um, positions at Biogen under under him. Um, but you know, Biogen brought in an outside person to run R and D, and those two guys didn't get along, and Al got all pouty, and you know he kind of disappeared for a little while. So like there was all this stuff going on internally that really kind of threatened the program uh, at that time. I will say, I think maybe just to round out our conversation on this, to play devil's advocate, you know, is it inappropriate that, you know, Alison Rock would have met with Billy Dunn at the neurology conference. If these are two folks who have known each other for years, both are at the conference, San Rock gets this signal that maybe this Alzheimer's drug does work. And yes, he is a representative from a company that stands to make billions of dollars on this drug, but he's also a neurologist who desperately wants to develop an Alzheimer's drug to help people. He thinks that this could work. Billy Dunn is a regulator who also wants to develop an Alzheimer's drug or help shepherd through an Alzheimer's drug that could work to help people. And they truly believe that it might work. I mean, that's a fair reading. And I think that's from the reporting, you know, one thing people were very insistent on is that Sandrock believes in this drug. He believes in the amyloid hypothesis, which is another can of worms we can open. And that, you know, so if you imagine it from his motivations, talking to Billy Dunn, while it might not look great <laughs> to an outsider based on the time, place and manner, is just what one would do if one really believed that this drug that everybody thinks at this point has failed could, in fact, help people, as you put it. And then likewise for Dunn. You have, you know, the FDA has been under pressure, um, well, it has been encouraged and been put under pressure by Congress, by patients, by so many people to not be so stodgy, to open up maybe not the floodgates, but crack the door a little bit, to be more considerate of, of different kinds of evidence for new treatments, especially for diseases where there either are no current treatments or the current treatments are, are wildly insufficient, which I think is fair to say about Alzheimer's disease. And so from that perspective, you know, Dunn's motivations seem mostly honorable def i mean you know that for through that framing honorable and and there's no allegation that there's kickbacks or any kind of you know inappropriate like remuneration or whatever so again the thing that everybody's mad about and, and the allegations of regulatory capture i think are fair enough to make given the facts but you can also kind of as you said we're, we're inviting ourselves to go into the heads of these men we don't actually really know that well but if you look at it from their stated perspectives and from the implications of their actions you could argue that Billy Dunn, the whole controversial thing the FDA did where they, they looked at this drug the way they look at cancer drugs, even though the science of oncology is a little more cut and dry than it is for, for Alzheimer's, you could look at it and say the best intentions were had at every stage here. It just wound up with a decision that has upset uh, a great many people in the end. And I bet we're going to be called into another meeting with Rick next week. So I guess there'll probably be more reporting to do. Oh, good. I'll set aside three more days to read that one. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your take on Adam and Damien and Matt's 7,000-word Biogen story. Or just tell us if you read it all. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. 
And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Also, it was 6,500, I think. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.